Welcome to the Answer Religious Air Show. My name is Brian Garlock. So glad you could join us today. This is our live Bible Q&A. So if you have a Bible question, email us now. Questions at answeringreligiousair.com is the best way to get a hold of us, as well as facebook.com slash answeringreligiousair. We like to tell everybody every week that if you just post on a shared video that you see floating around on Facebook, we might not see your comment or your question. We want to make sure that we take your question. So email us or private message us on Facebook. We are currently live right now on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, as well as will be podcast um, audio for the podcast right after the show. So we appreciate all those who tune in and share and support the Answering Religious Era show. We also go live on Tuesdays at 12 p.m. Eastern time for a series we're currently doing called Why I Believe. And we just look at different doctrines and things that we as Christians, uh, we believe, we teach, we practice, and we want to have an answer for our faith. And so if that is something that interests you, we encourage you to check us out every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. And then we have The Daily Answer with Mark Dunnigan, Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. Eastern time on our podcast platform. Uh, you can search for The Daily Answer or Answering Religious Error. Again, that's every Monday through Friday at 5 a.m. Eastern time, where Mark Dunnigan gives us the daily answer to all of life's questions. All right, gentlemen, it is good to see each and every one of you. And uh, we only have three guys on the panel today, so I might have to, as the host, answer some questions. I don't know. Not used to doing that, so we'll see how it goes. But good to see uh, see you all on and appreciate Colton in the back who does the producing also, if you would like to come on the show and meet with us, you can do so by following the instructions on our Facebook page, uh, the description on the Facebook video, as well as on YouTube. Click that little link, follow the instructions, and you can come on the show and ask your question. Um, Mark Gibson, you want to lead us in a word of prayer before we get started? I'd be glad to. <clears throat> Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your blessings and your goodness toward all of us. We're thankful for this time that we have to, to answer questions that have to deal with the Bible and uh, our spiritual lives and pleasing you. We're thankful, Father, for the technology that is available that so many can listen in now or later and be able to think about these things. And we pray, Father, that certainly we will confine our minds to seeking your will and your will only. We pray, Father, that uh, that we may always strive to follow in your light. Guide us always in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Appreciate that. All right. Before we get started with our very first question, which you can, again, email us questions at answeringreligiousair.com or private message us on our Facebook, facebook.com slash answeringreligiousair. It is meantime. All right, today's meme that's floating around on social media says, if God killed his only son for your sins, why can't he kill his only arch enemy for your sake? Obviously talking about Satan, the evil one who has come to destroy our souls or seek to destroy our souls. I mean, hey, if God can kill his only son, why can't he kill his enemy? So we want to talk about this meme. We want to expose it, examine it, see if there's any truth to it. And we will start with you, Nick. Well, you know, the, the problem with this meme is that Satan deserves death, too. And and so that's not much of a sacrifice if he is if he is dying because he it is just for him to die and he will die. One day he will be cast into the lake that burns with fire. And and so uh, Satan will get his just end. Uh, that still, even though he is going to be cast into the lake of fire, uh, that does not answer the, or give an account for our sins. And that's what's special about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because he came to this world, and though he was tempted in all aspects in which we are tempted in, he was sinless. And when he died, death could not contain him. And so after three days, he came back alive. And we read about resurrections in the Bible. We read about Lazarus. We read about the widow's sons. Those people were going to have to die again. Is he breaking up on your end, guys? I think he's, I think he's breaking up on my end. Uh, Nick, 
sorry, but you're you're breaking up. But I think you were talking about Lazarus, who was uh, raised from the dead, as well as others that Jesus raised from the dead. That they they um, were raised, but then they're going to die again, and then ultimately going to be raised in the resurrection. So appreciate that comment. Maybe you can restart your computer and come back to us. Brian, go ahead. You know, there's a lot of things that I that uh, I think are really problematic with this meme. Uh, one of them is Satan, the arch enemy of God. Romans chapter five says that we are God's enemy uh, because it talks about the idea that while we were enemies, you know, Christ died for us uh, and that by dying, he removed the enemy. The very first thing I would point out is to say, you, you misunderstand who God's enemy is. God's enemy is the one who commits sin. Uh, God's enemy is uh, us in sin. And the purpose of his son dying was to make a, you know, uh, make a propitiation for our sin. Uh, of course, you know, the point two being if God killed his son, the scriptures say that we killed his son. Uh, the scriptures say uh, that men killed his son. Um, you know, that, the, you know, I'm sure the, I'm sure the meme writer sees it as if God could have stopped it, it's God's fault. But that's not that's not necessarily logical, um, and that's it's certainly not the truth. That's not the statement of why it is that that's the case. Um, I noticed that uh, Mark Dunnigan had left a comment that I thought was really good too, and I'm going to steal it and take credit for it. Uh, Mark made the point to say that killing Satan isn't going to save our our souls. Satan's not the reason we sin. Um, Satan's not going to his disappearance isn't going to change things. The Bible says in James chapter one, we sin because we're we desire. And our desires give birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it leads to death. We, we can't blame Satan for sin. We can't say it's Satan's fault. Even in the Garden of Eden, when Satan is tempting the woman, uh, Satan leaves. He's not there when she looks at the fruit and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life kicks in. And she makes the decision to partake of the fruit. Satan may tempt us, but ultimately he's not the one who, who compels us to sin. We have that power and that control. And so uh, there's just a lot wrong with this meme uh, written by somebody who's not, who's not a theologian, who doesn't understand the Bible, who hasn't probably hasn't read much of the Bible and fails to see some big ideas that they get wrong in this meme. Yeah, great points there. Mark? Yeah, Brian makes excellent points there. And the very language there that God <clears throat> killed his only son would suggest that somehow Jesus wasn't in favor of this, that uh, he went kicking and screaming to the cross. And, uh, the closest we come to that kind of lang <clears throat> language is the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, but yet there it is, you make his soul an offering for sin. This is something that was done for our benefit. And in fact, uh, Christ himself, Ephesians 5 verse 1, gave himself. This was voluntary. And so we have to understand the difference here between the punishment that Satan will, in God's time, suffer, as Nick made reference to Revelation 20 there about being cast in the lake of fire, and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So it, it's trying to parallel two very different situations, and, it, and it's trying to, again, question God as to his timing, as to his intent, and so forth. And we just better be very careful questioning God about anything. Uh, God is doing what he's doing for our benefit, and we need not question him. Yeah. Uh, Terry, good to see you, brother. I see you came on. Yeah, I just got here on the nick of time, didn't I? You did. <laughs> but yeah, good to be with you. Yeah, I liked all the answers, and I don't have a whole lot to add to that. I just, I was thinking, uh, if he killed the arch enemy for our sake, would that therefore mean I wouldn't be able to choose evil and therefore wouldn't ever need another remedy? We'd still need a remedy, wouldn't Because we would still have the power of choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Uh, and, and temptation, the things, the lure of the flesh, those things would still be there. And so I would still need an answer a payment for my sin. So uh, that's, uh, so it's kind of ridiculous to think that there, there's a better way of dealing with sin than the way God uh, chose and God gave his only son to be a adequate payment. In fact, he is able to save us to the uttermost, uh, a thing that would not happen if the only thing God did was 
would keep, would be kill Satan and, and get rid of him. Uh, so sin would still be a problem. Uh, we would still have temptation in front of us. We would still have the problem of, of failing uh, with the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Those things would still be there. We just uh, wouldn't have the tempter kind of pushing things a little more, uh, but we'd still have those things in front of us. So, no, that wouldn't answer the problem. All right, guys. Appreciate those answers. If you have a meme that you would like to send in, you can email us questions at answeringreligiousair.com or private message us on our Facebook page. We do appreciate those who send us memes. All right. Our first question for today. Y'all have mentioned elders overseeing the local church before. What if a church doesn't have elders? Well, then you just have nothing but chaos. There we go. Moving on to the next question. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Mark Gibson, why don't you go ahead and take it away? Uh, well, I've been involved in both situations um, uh, in churches that do not have elders and those that do. Uh, certainly, we see that God's organization uh, is, we see his wisdom in that. It is much preferable and right and scriptural for a church to be scripturally organized with elders and deacons. Um, things uh, work much, much better, and we see God's wisdom in that, as I noted. Uh, but without elders, um, we see a situation perhaps like we saw with the Jerusalem church in the early chapters of Acts, where you had the apostles, but the apostles weren't elders, <clears throat> but you had the apostles, and there was in chapter 6 an issue that came up with benevolence and the Hellenistic widows, and so they appealed to the congregation to deal with this matter. And without elders, the congregation has to, in unity, deal with the situation, in particular, the men of that congregation, um, uh, because uh, women have a limited role in the situation of the church and so forth. But the men uh, representing the leadership would have to be in a position to make the decisions uh, as best they can and make expedient decisions for the work of the church that it may continue. Otherwise, like Brian said, there would be utter chaos. No one would be able to say anything. Who who would be able to uh, make decisions and see that those decisions are carried out? And so we sometimes talk about churches that are scripturally organized, and we can also talk about churches that are scripturally unorganized. And that's the idea that the congregations are still local congregations. They just do not have men that are qualified to be elders. We also talk about unscripturally unorganized. That means you have men who are qualified, but don't appoint them. That's another matter. But you can be scripturally unorganized in the sense of not having elders. And there's where the men must, in unity and in peace, uh, strive to lead that congregation and making decisions that have to be made. Perhaps others have some comments to add. Yeah. Brian? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Uh, currently, the congregation which I work with does not have elders, and probably every man here has worked with congregations that don't have elders. Uh, it may be the case that in the New Testament, more of the churches didn't have elders than did. Uh, uh, we only have a few congregations where elders are addressed, and if, if that's what we're meant to see, it might be the case. Corinth might be the best example of a congregation without elders. If so, there's a good clue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that helps us to figure out what we're supposed to do. Because what do you do without elders? What, how, does, how do decisions get made? You still have to do things. Paul still tells the church in Corinth they have to discipline members. They have to do the work that's expected of them. And how do these things get done? In chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, the apostle Paul talks about the wise men among you making determinations as judges. Uh, in the Old Testament in Israel, the judges of Israel uh, sometimes were, in the New Testament, they're called the elders of Israel. Uh, kind of interesting, it's the same term that we sometimes refer to, but uh, the idea that there are wise men among a congregation that make determinations. Um, within concepts of law, it's called a newocracy, N-O-O-O-C-R-A-C-Y, newocracy, meaning a, a, a representation by those that have wisdom and spiritual. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 talks about those who are spiritual are to be the ones who make determinations. Um, let me say that what this is not is it's not a democracy. Uh, a lot of churches kind of fall to that thinking, well, maybe we should vote on everything. But the problem with the democracy is yet you're inviting the least spiritually mature 
to have the same uh, determination within a congregation as the most spiritually mature. And that's, that's not going to bring about good things. And so it's important that we understand that the Bible gives us ideas about how a congregation behaves without elders. It speaks to the idea of those that are spiritually wise. You might say, how do we know if somebody's spiritually wise? In James chapter 3, James says you can know somebody's spiritual wise by their works, by their good deeds. Um, you know, we should be able to know who's wise among us, who should be making determinations. Uh, Titus chapter 2 talks about it being the older men and older women who are doing these things. By the way, kind of neat that in Titus chapter 2, he uses the same word uh, that he used in Titus chapter 1 for the office of elder uh, to describe the older men and older women who are uh, have some leadership within a congregation, uh, not, not an office of leadership, but at least some sense of authority. So it's important to understand churches are not going to have elders. Churches are still obligated to make the decisions and do the things that a church is given to do, and that we have examples in the New Testament where wise and spiritual men among the church uh, were ones making determinations uh, for the body, and that's something that we need to consider. And again, one of the mistakes we sometimes make is turning things into a democracy, voting on everything, and it's a mistake because it allows spiritual immaturity to have the same weight in decisions as spiritual maturity. Nick? Yeah, to kind of follow up on what Brian was saying there, uh, I've seen some problems in uh, churches where even the least spiritual man, if, even if they're just doing a men's meeting, right? The least spiritual man has the equal uh, say. And with this idea of voting on everything, if there's not a 100% agreement, then whatever's on the table gets uh, put in the trash can. And and that, that's a challenge because one man can sabotage the entire thing. Uh, you can have 10 men who are spiritually minded and one that is just popping into this men's meeting uh, because he comes on the right Sunday evening and he can sabotage the whole thing. Uh, there's There are a lot of problems with that. But when you don't have men who are qualified to be elders, you don't want to just put people in that position who are not qualified. That's going to bring its own trouble. And in Acts chapter 14, we do see that there is a pattern that or there is a uh, uh, precedence that churches will exist without elders. And then there's going to be a time of growth and maturity. And then elders can be appointed at a later time. How long should that be? Uh, that's a, that's an interesting question, and each church is going to be different. Um, definitely, uh, when a church is in its infancy, a, a church gets planted in a, a community for the first time, there's going to be uh, most likely no one qualified to be an elder uh, in that uh, infant church. But definitely, once you start uh, getting into the next generation, uh, there's got to be a lot of spiritual growth. And churches who go from generation to generation without uh, being able to appoint men to the positions of leadership, uh, like elder or deacon, there might be something else wrong with that congregation, and they need to be evaluating themselves. And so there are uh, certainly uh, some things to think about. Uh, there's a lot of uh, tendrils, I guess you could say, that... Uh, go into this of different, many different paths. Uh, but certainly there needs to be this pursuit of establishing qualified men to the eldership. And it needs to be done soberly. It needs to be done with prayer. And and it needs to be done with uh, sincerity. Go ahead, Terry. I would add, I would add just this much. Uh, the church was scriptural when it started and without elders and however, how long it takes, it's still scriptural. So don't, don't bypass a church because it does maybe you are the one that can start uh, moving the church toward an eldership. Maybe you have the qualifications. Don't bypass the church just because every member there doesn't have qualified people. The qualifications are not optional. You look in first Timothy chapter three and you see the qualifications. Well, every family group unit doesn't, uh, doesn't make a man qualified or disqualified necessarily. Now I, I think it's important when he says he's got to be the husband of one wife, and we don't just don't pull a man into the eldership just because he's a good man. 
he must be the husband of one wife. Uh, if he's not, then he doesn't qualify, no matter how good he is or how wise he is. He might be a good teacher, but he's not, a, he's not qualified to be an elder. Uh, so there are different qualifications. You can, he can continue to teach. He can continue in other roles and do good, but uh, he's still not qualified to be an elder. Those qualifications are very specific in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so every man doesn't qualify. And so it it may be that for a, a good long while, you don't have people in the congregation in that particular mixture of people. Uh, ones that have all of those qualifications. And if they don't, you just can't appoint somebody just to say we have, we're, we're going to be more scriptural. No, if you appoint somebody without the proper qualifications, you're going to be less scriptural, even though you're claiming that you've got some elders in, in position. So uh, there are a lot of different uh, things to take into consideration. And all of the guys mentioned some great things. Uh, so take all of that in consideration. Church can be uh, scriptural if it's striving for an eldership, if it's saying this is our goal and we're going to try our best to move in that direction, then they're still they're still scriptural. They're okay. But if they have the attitude, we don't want elders. We're not even going to try to get elders. Um, then that's an unscriptural situation. So get out of that. Get out of it if they don't want and they're not going to try to have an eldership. Uh, so that would be the only thing I'd say that would say that we need to consider. If a church is striving to have an eldership, then they're okay. They just may not have all the, the people, the right things in place to have qualified men. And that may not be any fault of their own at all. But if they have qualified men and they just don't want them, then uh, that's an unscriptural situation. Need to address it. And if they won't correct that, then we need to move on. Amen. Yeah. Great comments, guys. All right. Moving on. Next question here. Why do some translations include ending added later in quotation marks or a similar note, CEB, that's the uh, common, common English uh, Bible translation, for example? How do we know these verses, uh, verses 9 through 16, are scripture inspired by God? And, he, and he's here talking about Mark 16, Mark 16 here, verses 9 through 16. Uh, are there parallel verses that would indicate that, regardless of what Mark wrote, is anything suggesting that it is not gospel truth? Is it only the faith only, in quotation mark, believers that feel this way? Uh, before I pass on this, this question here, I think it's interesting how uh, this gentleman here is saying that is it is it only the faith only believers that feel this way and they're the ones who make the argument about Mark 16, uh, 9 through 16 not being inspired. And the reason why is because Jesus says in Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And some, maybe all, I don't know, but at least some faith only advocates will admit that Jesus does seem to say that belief and baptism is necessary for salvation. However, the counter argument is, well, Mark 16, 16, 16 is not inspired because verses 9 through 16 is not in the original manuscripts. Um, And obviously there are some of our own brethren who believe in the necessity of baptism, but they do not believe that Mark 16, 9 through 16 is inspired. And there may be even some on this panel today, uh, but I wanted to sh- throw that note for the for the audience. Um, and then I want to do say this about the parallel. Uh, I assume that gentleman here is talking about parallel verses to say other gospel accounts. You know, does Matthew's account parallel with Mark's account? Um, do a little search on your own with Mark 1 and Mark 16. I did that one time, and I think there's an interesting parallel there between the casting out of of uh, unclean spirits or demons, but also the fact that Jesus tells them to to go out with this this limited commission, and then Mark sixteen is this great commission. So I think there's some some things uh, that might interest you there as far as par- parallel within the book of Mark itself. But all right, uh, enough uh, talking on my part. 
let's see who wants to go first. Is it inspired or is it not? Great stuff. Great question. I love this question. Um, I've been I've seen it two ways uh, as presented as an argument. One is by people that are faith only. They uh, I remember getting caught into a study and somebody said, no, you can't use Mark 16, 16 because it's not it's not trustworthy as a passage. Secondly, I've also heard it used by Bible skeptics. Uh, probably you, we've all heard of Bart Ehrman, who's a big Bible skeptic and produces a lot of literature about it. And he's uh, promotes the idea that Mark 16, uh, uh, 9, through six, uh, 9, 9 through the end of the chapter is not original uh, for the purpose of saying that the gospel never testified that Jesus rose from the grave, um, which is kind of an interesting point. So uh, kind of to answer that, first of all, uh, it, a lot of Bibles, in fact, anymore, it seems like almost all Bibles have that little footnote that says this passage isn't in every text. What we're really saying is it's not in two texts. Of over a thousand ancient uh, Greek manuscripts of Mark, it's not in two of them. So right away you think, what? That doesn't sound like something worth noting. But the reason it's noted is they're the two oldest manuscript, uh, total manuscript copies. So um, uh, that is to say that the two oldest codexes that have that one of them clearly has a space that it that it would have fit into and is not written in there, which makes us think that the that the copyist knew it was there and didn't put it in there. And then the other one uh, doesn't have it at all. Um, what's kind of interesting, though, is that even though those are the two oldest, we have older quotes of statements made in Mark chapter 16, I think around 180 AD, or maybe even older than that, uh, Irenaeus, uh, or, or some say Irenaeus, uh, makes a quote out of Mark chapter 16 from those verses. Uh, to put that, I think Justin Martyr makes some quotes of this as well. Uh, so I brought that actually to the men I studied with, and I said, look, uh, you're saying it's not in there, but before those books were written, they were quoting these verses as scripture. They're citing it as scripture, quoting it as scripture, um, so, so it was scripture. It was understood to be a passage in scripture long beforehand. Of course, the second point is uh, actually to the point that the skeptic would make. Um, how on earth could Mark write a, a story of the life of Jesus and not tell us Jesus is actually alive? Um, that, that's kind of outrageous. Uh, and I brought that to the men I studied with, and they really didn't have an answer for that because they, whoa, uh, you know, they were more, more focused on getting rid of Mark chapter 16, verse 16, than they were actually thinking about the repercussions of what they just said. So somebody brings that to you. It's not good scholarship. Uh, to try to remove that passage based on on this very minor exception. I say minor, maybe I should say minor, but this this exception that doesn't really have any credibility. It doesn't have credibility from a, uh, a theological standpoint. It doesn't have credibility from a, a historical standpoint. It just doesn't it just doesn't really stand to say that this wasn't a, a part of the scriptures originally. Um, it would be a terrible thing to say that a gospel actually isn't a gospel because there's no testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. Terry. Those are excellent thoughts. And, and others have, have made observation too. Uh, in addition to, to what Brian has said, that if you've got this book and it actually ends at verse eight and they were afraid. And that's the way you end your book is that they were, there's no victory here. There's nothing uh, really compelling about, well, what do you do to be saved? He didn't even say believe then, did he? And he, and so we just got a, an ending there. Well, when you look at those manuscripts that are, you know, they've survived and somebody explains, well, why did they survive? Was it, was it their survival because they were uh, excellent? They were just, there was no flaw uh, about them. Or did they survive because nobody used them for a long time and they didn't get worn out? Uh, and so that's the reason that they survived. Maybe they were inferior and that was the reason why they survived. You have to look at that as a possibility that the, the, the uh, older manuscripts that we're referring to, the, uh, the Sinaitic and the Botanicus and uh, the Alexandrian, all of those may have survived in better shape because they just weren't used up and uh, appealed to uh, often enough to wear them out. And so others got worn out uh, earlier. So I would say um, the evidence doesn't say, doesn't suggest that these verses should be eliminated. Actually, the evidence shows that they should be there. But even if not, 
there is nothing in these verses that contradicts any other verse in the New Testament. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says, Baptism does also now save us, putting baptism in the salvation process exactly like uh, the gospel of Mark does. Uh, then there is no contradiction whatsoever. So those are my thoughts. Yeah, all those are good thoughts, Brian and Terry both. Um, I have no problem preaching out of any of these verses here. I believe it is part of the inspired text. Of course, it is a question of what they call textual criticism. We don't have any of the original manuscripts that were signed by the gospel writers or any of the New Testament for that matter or the Old Testament. Uh, and therefore, we don't have those on hand that would seal the deal, at least for those who are honest and, and love the scriptures. Uh, but what we have are copies of copies of copies of copies. And we have also allusions, as Brian mentioned, from early writers to the scriptures. And I think uh, that clearly shows that these verses were known. These verses were used. These verses were taught. Uh, he mentioned early writers, uh, Tatian and his diatessaron in AD 170. That's not, that's within a hundred years of the first century, uh, included these verses. Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, quotes verse 19, and he lived around 180 AD. I think those fellows knew about this matter, and we're living now nearly 2,000 years afterwards. So I think their testimony is very powerful. Uh, and so these verses were known long before the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus manuscripts came out missing that. And why they're missing it, no one can say for sure. And so to just simply say, well, then that text is not inspired is just that's poor textual criticism. Um, you can go one way or the other, depending on the evidence that's out there. But if you want to say <clears throat> that it's not there, you're going to have to prove it. And you can't prove it. There is no absolute conclusive evidence that it is not inspired. In fact, the evidence, I believe, weighs the other way. And our faith-only friends have jumped onto the bandwagon with the scholars that, that deny that it's inspired. And it's, it's convenient for them to try to get rid of it. But like, like Terry said, there's nothing taught in those verses that isn't taught anywhere else in the New Testament including the essentiality and necess necessity of baptism. So they don't, they're not going to get anywhere with that. Yeah. All right, guys. Great observations. Appreciate it and appreciate the question. Uh, don't forget, you can email us questions at answeringareligiousair.com, private message us, facebook.com slash answeringareligiousair, or you can come on the show. Just follow the links on the Facebook and YouTube descriptions. Our next question that we have here. Uh, are couples who live together without getting married in a legal or a legal are in a re legal or a legal relationship? Are couples living together in common agreement without getting married considered fornication? Who is the fornicator, and what is the term fornications in First Corinthians? I appreciate the question. Um, who wants to take a stab at that one first? Well, I would give this just an observation here. What is the intent of this couple? If it's just sex, let's get together and have sex. That's fornication. If there is an intent that we are we are going to get we are going to be married in the eyes of God and legally, uh, then the intent uh, is the the thing that. Um, that we should consider when we're talking about common law, uh, marriage, um, there may be some States where, which allow that a couple intending to be known as a married couple, that that is a, that becomes a, a common marriage recognized by the state recognized by all concern. But if it's just shacking up, living together i'll use you as long as we're happy together we'll we'll uh, we'll stay together that's fornication fornication is sexually immorality god does not authorize uh under any condition uh sex before the commitment of marriage you can't have 
sex before the commitment of marriage. You have to have the commitment to marriage first and then the sexual benefits. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, uh, says very, very clearly, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Not just we're going to shack up and live together and we're going to uh, have sexual uh, intercourse and, and, and live it up without the commitment of marriage. So, so the commitment is first and then the sexual relationship is a benefit of that, that commitment. Don't have the commitment there, then it's going to be sexual immorality. Those are my thoughts. Brian, Mark, anyone else? That pretty much summed it up. Although he asked, think, what, what is the fornicator and what is the term fornications in First Corinthians? I think Terry mentioned it means it's pornea. It means sexual immorality, that which is uh, that which is uh, outside of the realm of what where God put this relationship, and that is in a marriage relationship. Any other sexual activity outside of that, of course, would come under fornication. All right, appreciate it. Moving on, next question. Any time now, when the producer decides to uh, click the next one. Please explain John 3 through 5. I assume that means John 3 in verse 5. I'm going to go with that. Um, so let's go with John 3 in verse 5. Uh, in verse 3 and verse 5, you have Jesus talking about being born again and then also being uh, kind of defining, well, not kind of, but defining that as born of water and of the spirit. So let's uh, let's let's explain that. Brian, Terry, sure. Let's uh, let's go ahead and read the passage first. Uh, John three and verse five. Jesus answered, "Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God." Um, I think probably this passage um, is not really that difficult to understand. Uh, most commentate or most cross references are going to give you, give you Mark 16, 16. We just talked about that. Um, Acts 2, 38. It's going to connect us to passages that talk about the working of water in the spirit, which, you know, Acts 2, 38, or, you know, we, we have lots of different passages that tell us that when we are baptized, we receive the Holy Spirit's gift. Uh, you know, when we were baptized. We are cleansed of our sins. When we are baptized, we are made alive. Uh, Romans chapter six says that when we are baptized, we are baptized, we go into the water as a dead person and we arise alive uh, uh, with Christ's resurrection. So the connection is constant throughout the New Testament that baptism is the point of regeneration. My favorite passage uh, that talks about that is in Titus uh, chapter three and verse five. Titus says that God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, how? By the washing of regeneration. Regeneration means, you know, made new again or created again, born again, in other words, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So what we want to understand is that uh, John 3 and verse 5 is uh, almost certainly a reference to the things that are going to be taught later on uh, about the characteristics and nature of baptism, that uh, that baptism is going to be necessary in order for one to uh, to receive the gift of God to uh, have this and that baptism is the point where God regenerates us, where God uh, renews our life and the Holy Spirit's gift of life is given to us. Uh, Titus 3, 5 is really the key passage and I appreciate Brian noting that. I just simply add in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. There you have the spirit. Baptism is the water, water baptism, the one baptism. And then the one body is the idea of the kingdom of God. And so that's, again, a very parallel passage to what God is doing in being buried with Christ and being raised to walk with him and to be a part of his kingdom, to put on Christ. I appreciate that. Terry, before we move on, you, you got something? Yeah, you can look at the Ethiopian eunuch. He said, here is what or what hinders me to be baptized. Well, what's moving him to even ask that question? Well, it's the words of the Holy Spirit 
And Peter, uh, Philip explained to him what the spirit had said in Isaiah 53. So the spirit is involved in this process that leads the eunuch to say, well, here's water. What hinders me? And when he is, uh, takes him down into the water and baptizing him, uh, baptizes him, says uh, he didn't see Philip anymore. And he went on his way rejoicing. What is he rejoicing about? Well, I got a new life now. Uh, I've been born again. I've been born of the water and of the uh, and of the spirit. So why would he not be rejoicing? He's celebrating his new life in Christ. And Romans six says, "You die to sin. You're buried with him in baptism. You rise up to walk in newness of life." There's your born of the water and of the spirit, right there. Newness of life comes when you listen to the spirit and are brought to baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Your sins are remitted. You've just got a new life in, ahead of you. Those are my thoughts. I appreciate it. All right, next question. May I know the difference between mind and heart? Is there a difference at all? What say you guys? I would say it depends on the context. But uh, most contexts, when you think of the mind, you're talking, thinking of the intellect, you're thinking of the, uh, the thinking part of you. Uh, when you're thinking of the heart, you're talking about the center of your emotional being in some context. So some uh, texts will attach it to both and they're the same, one and the same. Some would uh, separate them as, uh, as an intellectual facet versus, versus uh your intellect affecting how you feel about things, the heart of your, your emotions. So it depends on the context. Those are my thoughts. Anyone else? All right. We'll go with that answer then. All right. Next question. Uh, there are a lot of people asking if it is biblical to turn on your television to worship online with any congregation, uh, parentheses, church of Christ, on Sunday, if you couldn't make it to that particular Sunday. Uh, man, we got this question about 10 times during COVID. So uh, I think we are all ready to answer this question. So what uh, what do you think there, Brian? What would you say to that? Yeah, First Corinthians chapter 11, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians about gathering together uh, for the assembly to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, oftentimes that's what we call worship, is the assembly where we come together for taking the Lord's Supper. Key verse I always kind of hone in on is where the apostle is talking. And he says in verse 20, when you come together in one place uh, for partaking the Lord's Supper. Of course, he goes on to say later, and we wait for one another. Um, the One of the things that he wants the Corinthians to understand is that partaking of the Lord's Supper is not meant to be a personal thing. It's meant to be communal, which is why we call it communion. Uh, we are communing with the body of Christ. Indeed, he says that if you're not discerning the body of Christ, which in that context is talking about the church, you are taking it in an unworthy manner. So uh, we have to be discerning of the body of Christ, the people that we're taking it with. We are gathered in one place to take it. We are waiting for one another. I would say all three of those things would not permit uh, us uh, to be effectively or accurately taking the Lord's Supper um, it, through an electronic medium like TV or internet or something like that. So uh, I would suggest that we are not accurately uh, accurately doing the thing we need to be doing if that's what we're doing. And I'd add this. Uh, the qualification at the bottom of that question is if you couldn't make it that particular Sunday, there's nothing wrong with watching some program and, 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 uh, letting yourself be edified. If you couldn't make it, uh, just be careful about, about making that a habit and making it, uh, an, a regular excuse. If you can't make it because you're sick and, but you can listen to some, some, somebody on the TV or, uh, internet, uh, take advantage of it if you can. But if you, are capable of being at an assembly, be at the assembly. That's my thoughts. All right. There's, I might just say there's a difference between watching and worshiping. I can watch even, uh, I could watch somebody in a Catholic program or 
uh, or a Baptist program or some other congregation, but I'm watching that. I'm not necessarily worshiping when I watch. And there's a difference there. And I think Brian and Terry brought that out very good. And so we have to be very careful. There's certain things that we do in the assembly, but when we're just watching online, that that is not, in other words, why would we even need to be there if that's worship? We could just all meet online, but that's not what the Lord wants us to do. And we have to be very careful about that. Nick? Yeah, let's see if my internet holds up here. Um, the the idea of exceptions, uh, you know, so from time to time will pop up. Uh, for example, you go back to the Old Testament, you can read about how the Passover was trying to be observed uh, during the days of Hezekiah, and the people weren't purified for that. And, and uh, some exceptions were made, and they had to follow some of the extra parameters that are given in the law to go to the next month to do the Passover. Uh, but then next time you read in Josiah's day, everything's back to normal. Uh, and, and so it's exceptions cannot be the rule. And so during COVID-19, we were in a really difficult place and, and trying to make heads and tails of things. We didn't know things. We were curious about things. We were concerned about things. And, and, uh, and, and so Elders were trying to make decisions that they, uh, with the information they had at hand, uh, but exceptions may have come up, but exceptions can never be the rule. All right, appreciate that. Um, we do have a comment here that I want to bring up uh, about wanting to know more about Bible authority leadership of church. Uh, do us a favor and private message us on our Facebook page facebook.com slash answering religious error, or you can email us questions at answering religious We do like to have uh, Bible studies with people and we have done that before. And so if you want to have some private conversations with us, uh, we will meet with you and we will study via FaceTime um, or coming on, on the show like this uh, off, off uh, being live, of course. And we'll, we'll do our best to study with you about Bible authority and, and leadership within the church if that's something that interests you. So, again, email us questions at answeringreligiousair.com or private message us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash answeringreligiousair. And we'd love to study with you. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if we've got time. Yeah, we got time for this question right here. Let's go ahead and take this one and then we will be done with today's show. Why does Jesus call himself the son of man, but Peter calls him the son of God in Matthew 16, 13 through 16. Appreciate the question. Um, Terry, you got any thoughts on that? Son of man was a um, special uh, designation of him as the special offspring. Remember Genesis three verse 15 says, he would be the seed of the woman. And so we're talking about somebody that is going to be human. Uh, Isaiah chapter nine, verse six says that this child would be born, but he would be called mighty God. So this is a, the ultimate son of man that was designated to be the child that was going to be called mighty God. So both of those designations are really pointing to the same figure and same person. One is just expressing his humanity, but he's the unique human, the one that was to bring our great deliverance, the one that was anticipated by all the prophets and even was prefigured by the son of man. You remember Ezekiel was described as a son of man. He was a unique prophet. He was unique in that sense. And so the, the expression son of man has to do with one that is very uniquely uh, the uh, a, a uh, son, a offspring of humanity that is uh, very, very uh, noteworthy and should be uh, honored. But then the son of God is also the same thing because he's the son of man that was to be the son of God. So why they might they see why some might why why some might call him son of man and son and some son of God uh, is um, you know because both of them apply to to Jesus equally and so you're talking about the same person. Can you hear me, Nick? 
Yeah, there we go. Um, so, yeah, the, the idea of the Son of Man is a huge prophecy out of Daniel 7. And, and that's got to be, uh, bottom line, one of the emphasis or inferences that are being made. Uh, but also, you can also look at Son of being a uh, relationship uh, establishment. Like, what are what's the relationship here? Being Son of Man and being Son of God is very important to understand the makeup of who Jesus is. He is a human and he is God. And so both of them are very important concepts to understand about who Jesus is. All right. I think that's covered well. Unless Mark, you got something? Well, I just say that it was apparent he was a son of man. They could see him. He was flesh and blood. But when when Peter confessed him as the son of God, he said, you didn't learn that from flesh and blood. You learned that by revealed from the father from heaven. And so one is revealed by sight and touch and feel. The other is revealed by divine revelation. And that's important to see. All right. Appreciate the questions. Appreciate the answer, the wisdom from the panel as well. And uh, thank you for tuning in today. Any last minute uh, comments, guys? All right. Uh, Terry, I heard that you were late. I was sent this picture and I was told that you were late today because you were saving the world. Is that is that true? I'm, I'm not sure. Were we supposed to give away your identity about that? I, I <laughs> That's probably real close. Well, if the, Terry <laughs> takes his glasses off, we might realize who he is. That would be yeah. the. Just, I can. I, anyway, I, I was just. I can't this broadcast that. I can't do that. <laughs> it's got to be kept secret. <laughs> well, I'm sorry for giving away your identity there. All right, guys, appreciate y'all. And uh, to the audience, thank you for supporting the Answer Religious Era show by sending in your Bible questions and sharing this video and such. Don't forget, we go live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as podcast after the show. It's at, again, Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Eastern time. Email us your questions, questions at answeringreligiousera.com or private message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash answeringreligiousera. If you just post on a video that's being shared or that you see floating around on Facebook, we might not see your questions. So you're going to have to email us or private message us. Also, Tuesday's Why I Believe series, it's about to be coming to an end and then we will be announcing a new series. And so look, we're looking forward to that. That's every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. And then The Daily Answer with Mark Dunnigan, weekdays. 5 a.m. Eastern Time, something to help get your day started. You can find that show every Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. Eastern Time on podcast platforms. Um, search for The Daily Answer or Answering Religious Air, and you should uh, you should be able to find it there. Also, don't forget about the Sisters in Christ who have their show on Thursday that's called Older Women Likewise. You can find that on Facebook, YouTube, and podcast. That's every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And then finally, Bob, who was not on the show today, Bob's Bible Basics BBB, every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find him on Facebook and YouTube as well. Thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate the questions that were sent in. We look forward to answering your questions next week if the Lord wills. Until then, God bless.